0: PART TWO OF CHAPTER THIRTEEN OF EYES LIKE THE SEA BY MOR YOKOI TRANSLATED BY R. BANE THE SLIPPERVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN RECORDING BY MARIANNE We were about five hundred paces from the terrible beasts. They immediately perceived us, and, leaving the carcass, forthwith began scudding towards us, spurring each other on with their nasty, short, sharp yelps. "'Alas! alas! it is all up with us now!' "'wailed the contrabass. "'The wolves will eat us up.' "'Even in that hour of mortal peril "'the clarinetist was true to his gypsy humour. "'Then we shall have a very queer shape "'at the resurrection,' said he. "'I bade them leave off wailing, "'and hastened to clamber up into a willow-tree "'whither the monsters could not follow us. "'It was an old pollard willow, "'the branches of which were cut off every year, "'so that only the crown of it remained, "'surrounded by young shoots.' I, who had never learnt the art of tree-climbing, was hoisted up by the gypsies first of all, and then they hastily scrambled up after me. When we had got to the top of the tree, we discovered that in the middle of it was a large hole. The whole inside of the tree was hollow, and could contain a man. Leader, said the contrabass, your loss would be most serious. Creep down into that hole. I took him at his word, and glided down from the crown of the tree into the deep hollow trunk. First of all, however, I tied my long cotton neckerchief to a little branch that I might be able to hoist myself up again in case of need, for the hole in the willow went right down to its very roots. At the side of the tree, too, close to an old branch, there was an orifice as large as one's fist, through which one could look as through an attic window. The five wolves were not long in arriving. They did not come quite near at first, but reconnoitred. Whenever one of them sneaked up a little nearer, the clarinet-player aimed at it with his instrument, which the wolf took for a musket. Then the beast would back a little, and scratch up the snow with his hind legs. They say the creature is wont to do this when he sees a man stand on the defensive. He tries to blind him with snow. When, however, the wolves at last discovered that we had no firearms, they sent up the ugliest howls, and began the siege of the willow. They took tremendous leaps in the air to reach the crown of the tree, but it was too high for them. And then it occurred to the gypsies that they had often heard that wolves had a strong penchant for music, and they began to give them a clarinet and fiddle concert. It is true that the nasty beasts left off the siege, sat round the willow, and began to howl in concert with the music, at the same time raising their horrid jaws toward the moon and lashing their sides with their raggish brush-like tails and for a short time I was quite amused at the scene. But suddenly our double danger occurred to my mind. "'Hey, gypsies, stop,' I say. "'Is the devil in you? "'Your music will bring the pickets of the Croats upon us, "'and they will flay us alive.' At this they stopped their music. This appeared to make the wolves still more savage, and now they tried a fresh stratagem. They had found out that the willow leaned a little to one side, and rushing at it from a little distance, they attempted to scale the sloping side of the tree. This maneuver was likely to have succeeded. It was then that I saw what a powerful beast the wolf really is, and how much more cunning than any species of dog. Scrambling up at full tilt, they managed to reach the crown of the willow, but there the brave contrabass was awaiting them, and gave them such a kick on the snout with his iron-heeled boots that the attacking beast fell head over heels backwards. This they repeated ten or twelve times. And there was a remarkable circumstance about it, that every time an attacking wolf was prostrated by a kick from the gypsy, the others rushed upon him as he fell, and worried him as if to punish him for his failure. Suddenly they left off and went and sat down in a heap, just in front of my window. Their tongues lolled out of their panting mouths. Their hot, bestial breath rose into the cold air before me. They appeared to be taking counsel together. The biggest of them seemed to be their leader. If one of the younger ones yelped too much, he would snap at his neck as if to say, Shut up. At last they appeared to have hatched their stratagem. The whole lot of them got up and shuffled further off, Squinting over their shoulders all the time towards the willow tree. My gypsies fancied they were saved. You shall have no roast gypsy this time, bawled the clarinet player after them derisively from his shore stronghold, as he fancied it. All at once the wolves returned and stormed onwards like race horses, each one being about a wolf's tail ahead of the other. The first of them rushed straight up the tree, and while the contrabass was kicking him in the head, the second wolf leaped across the first wolf's back and seized the man's leg. Then I heard a despairing shriek. Don't let me go, comrade! The second musician tried to free his downfalling friend from the jaws of the wild beast, and in doing so lost his balance, and the pair of them fell down from the tree. What happened after that is more than I can tell you. It is enough that I should have had to live through that mortal struggle of the two luckless victims with those filthy brutes. How many times have I not dreamt it all over again? I believe that even if I had committed all the seven deadly sins, I should have more than expected them all in that awful hour. I hid my face in the crumbling rottenness of the hollow tree, that I might hear and see nothing. It seemed an eternity to me, while the bestial howling lasted which the wolves made as they shared together their accursed banquet in my very presence. I dared not stir, lest they find out that I also was there. Great heaven, what horrors I had to endure! Suddenly a sort of growling and snarling began close beside me. The old wolf was running, sniffing round the hollow tree. He had discovered that there was still booty inside it. He began to scrape the earth at the root of the tree. He evidently meant to dig a hole beneath the tree through which he might get at me. Fortunately for me, it was not sandy soil, but stony, hard-frozen turf. He could not succeed that way. Then he caught sight of the hole in the side of the tree. At one time, perhaps, a branch had been sawed off at this spot, and the bark had rotted away. The wolf began to enlarge this opening, tore it with his claws and gnawed and worried the rotten wood with his grinders. He had soon so far enlarged the hole as to be able to stick his head into it. I saw the green glare of his fiery eyes. I felt his stinking breath. I heard the gnashing of his teeth. Then despair made me foolhardy. I drew my crooked knife out of the leg of my boot. With the other hand I seized the wolf by the ear, and cut it off at a single twirl. At this the beast, with a furious howl, drew back his head from the hole and began to howl and run away like a whipped cur. The others followed after him. With the wolf's ear remaining in my hand as a trophy, I sank back against the hollow trunk. I could not sink right down, because the hollow space was too narrow. I felt a cold shudder run all over me at this ghastly narrative. Bessie herself was quite exhausted. Alas! I am worn out. I tremble at the very thought of it. You are the second person to whom I have told it. But how pale you are all at once. I suppose I had turned very pallid. It had suddenly flashed through my brain that just at that very time my wife was on her journey through an uninhabited valley, and the foresters told me that wolves strayed about there. Bessie sighed deeply, raised her drooping head, and then continued her story. Thus I had freed myself from the wolves, but I was not left very long in the belief that shame at my depriving their leader of one of their ears was the cause of it. No, wolves are not so shame-faced as all that. A troop of horsemen was approaching from behind the sand-hills. There were six men on horseback, and one man on assback. One terror had been supplanted by another. Peering through the hole in the tree, I recognized the uniforms of the horsemen by the light of the moon. They were yelichichich's hussars. And that there might be no doubt about their coming after us, I recognized as they came near the face of the ass rider. It was my bass-viol player whom I had left behind me. It was very easy to see what had happened. The gypsy, to save his own skin or perhaps at the flogging post itself, had confessed that the band had come from Colmorn and was hired by me to go as far as Debretsen. Hence it was not very difficult to conclude that I was only a false gypsy who was carrying dispatches from the beleaguered fortress to the Hungarian government. The horseman had brought the gypsy with them that he might put them on my track. Once discovered, I was lost. On the snow-field, lit up by the moonlight, the scene of the hideous struggle was plain to the newcomers. The long lines of blood, fragments of torn garments, a foot sticking out of a boot in the snow. Ugh, may I never see such a sight again! The horseman galloped quickly up over the crackling snow. The violin cellist had to dismount from his ass. The good creature howled and groaned from the bottom of his throat, bewailing his comrades in the gypsy tongue, and cursing the monsters who had devoured them. The leader of the patrol was a sergeant. He ordered the gypsy about in Croatian, and the gypsy has the peculiar virtue of understanding what is said to him in a language of which he is perfectly ignorant. He replied in Hungarian, Oh, woe, woe! those accursed wolves have devoured our leader. There is his boot. They've only left his boot. I recognize it well. He bought it only last week at Segled. He gave six florins for it. A brand new boot. And this is his foot. It was plain to me that the gypsy had guessed that I was hidden somewhere, and there was enough of the gypsy in him, even amidst the greatest horrors, to induce him to make fools of my pursuers. HE BETRAYED ME FIRST OF ALL BECAUSE HE COULDN'T HELP IT. HE SAVED ME FINALLY BECAUSE HE COULD. HE KNEW VERY WELL THAT I HAD GIVEN MY NEW BOOTS TO THE CONTRA base. MY BOOTS WERE OF RUSSIAN LEATHER. "'Look there!' cried the sergeant, and pointed with his finger. "'Yedin dwa! Yaks The gypsy swore by all that was holy that that was the third. "'Then where's the first? "'That's the first, of course.' There was no dinning into his head the arithmetical truism that if you take two from three, one remains. The sergeant thereupon ordered one of the hussars to dismount from his horse, at the same time pointing at the willow-tree with his sword, whence I concluded that he was about to examine the tree to see if anybody was hidden in its hollow trunk. I now veritably believed that the time had come for me to turn my crooked knife against my own throat. All at once a crackle of musketry resounded from the brushwood and a company of guerrilla horse dashed out, crying, "'Forward, Magyars!' The Yelichich hussars didn't see the joke of this at all, hastily turned their horses' heads and galloped off in the direction of the town. The violoncellist cellist also mounted his long-eared beast, and ambled gently off in a third direction, midway between the two belligerents. He had no desire to take part in the struggle. The guerrillas, who were numerous, sent a few volleys after the enemy, but from such a distance that the bullets couldn't possibly hit the fugitives, and then returned in triumph. Then I, hearing them speak Hungarian, quickly hoisted myself up out of the hole into the top of the tree, and began, so far as my hoarse voice would allow me, to give them indications of my existence. The gallant warriors immediately hastened to the willow-tree and helped me down from my dangerous perch. Their leader, a handsome, Chivalrous looking young man with a true Hungarian face, began to cross question me and asked me whence I came and whither I was going. Perceiving that I was among Hungarian soldiers, I frankly told them that I had come from Kom, and had been sent to Debrecen with dispatches for the Hungarian government. The guerrilla captain was a suspicious man. Oh ho, I dare say, that's easily said, but difficult to believe. What? Confide such a mission to a gypsy a likely tale. I told him that I was no gypsy, though my face was painted so, but that I lived at Comorn and belonged to the place. Then, if you are an inhabitant, tell me if you know one Morris Yokoi there, and what you know of him. I was very pleased to answer such a question. I know him very well, I said, and I can tell you this much about him, that he went to the high school at Kekshmet, where he completed his legal studies, "'or rather learnt how to paint in oils "'from a worthy comrade of his there. "'Without more ado, he clapped his hand in mine. "'That worthy comrade of his was no other than myself. "'So you see,' she said, turning towards me, "'you are of assistance to me, even here. "'Wasn't that old schoolfellow of mine called Yansky? I asked. "'Yes, that's what they called him. "'With him was another young man, with quite a girlish face.' They called him Yotsi. He inquired about you most particularly. When you gave your artistic representations at Kekshkemet, he used to play the girls' parts. Quite true, I said. So it was. So, you see, I must have been there, or I should have known nothing about these things. The guerrillas told me all about it as they took me with them. They were very attentive. One of them gave me his mantle, another let me mount his nag, And so they took me to the Skizra Inn, where they made me drink punch with them, regaled me with veal, and then made me a bed on the straw with their mantles that I might sleep off my exhaustion. The Yelichich hussars gave us no trouble. They could not come back till morning, when the whole regiment would doubtless turn out to capture the guerrillas, who would, by that time, be on the other side of the Thais. The sledges were all ready to start, and would scour back across the frozen river at the first signal to Sipakaza where there were four posts of the Hungarian army, under Damienich. But for a long time I could not sleep. Constantly before my eyes flitted the horrible death-struggle between the two unhappy men and the wild beasts, and amidst the howling and shrieking resounded the gay song of the guerrillas, The huts ablaze, the rush-roof crackles, Press thy brown maid to thy breast. In my dream this tune was mingled with the howling of the wolves, and at one moment the wolves were singing, the huts ablaze, and at another the Croats were howling at the gypsies sitting on the branch. Towards morning I was awakened, by two cannon-shots. I rejoiced to be delivered from my spectres. The lieutenant of the guerrillas hurried me into the sledge, as a regiment of hostile horse was approaching from Ketchkmet. It took us ten minutes to dash across the frozen theis. On the opposite bank the four posts of the honveds were encamping. The business of the guerrillas was to harass the enemy, capture their forage wagons, and then bring word of their movements to the main army. They took me straight to General Damianich. I was now no longer obliged to keep my dispatch hidden, so I split up my fiddle, took out of it the documents that were gummed to it, and their production was my best credentials. The approving, smiling glance of the powerful, heroic-looking general I shall never forget— at the sight of him I quite forgot that I was personating a man, and would have liked to have fallen down before him and kissed his hand. Indeed, I was so agitated that I could not utter a word. The general filled a little glass of skill vorium. "'Drink, my son,' said he. "'It will loosen your throat.' My throat was hoarse. I had a voice as deep as a man's. I told him I had come from Cornwall, and I was sent to Lazar Meseros, the war-minister.' "'You will seek old Kufis in vain at Drebitzin, my son. "'He commands there no more. "'So you Corman folks don't know what's going on outside, eh? "'Another is at the head of the war department now. "'I will give you a letter of introduction to him.' "'Then he sat down and wrote me a couple of lines "'to a general with a German name, "'which is expressed in Hungarian by the word Baci. "'He said, while writing his letter, "'that this general with a German name "'was the life and soul of our military organization.' Then, by the General's command, I received a nice clean Hanved uniform, I had to retain my brown countenance for some time longer, and beside that I had an open passport, enjoining upon all to give me every facility to reach Drabitson as quickly as possible. On the evening of the following day I arrived at Drabitson, and on descending from my sledge proceeded at once to the General's. He was a mild, soft-featured gentleman, with a close-clipped beard and moustache, he didn't even wear a general's uniform. Nobody would have guessed his rank from the look of him. After reading through my letter of introduction, he looked me straight and sharply in the face. "'You are Captain Themaher Rengategi, eh?' If I had only been intent on my own interest, I might have told him quite frankly that I had no right either to the name or the uniform of a soldier. But how could I betray my faithful consort, who was smuggled away in the hovel at Hayteni?' "'Yes, General, I am. "'Who made you captain?' "'The War Minister.' "'For deeds of valor?' "'During the siege of Vienna, I twice carried dispatches through the besieging camp from the Hungarian government to General Bem. "'Here I intervened. "'That is not true. "'I know very well through whom the Hungarian government got those dispatches.' "'Anyhow, my friend boasted of it as his own deed,' said Bessie. After which she resumed her narration. Good, said the general. Now give me the dispatch. The information was written in a secret cipher. I must decipher this first. There will be a meeting tonight of the Committee of National Defense. Early tomorrow morning you will appear before me. Now go to the white horse. Speak to nobody. Keep to your room. Nevertheless, an hour afterwards he sent for me. He led me into his inner room, for he allowed himself the luxury of a double-room department at Drabitson. Two other ministers, Paul Nyari and Joseph Potoy, were not so fortunate. They had to be content with the double room between them. The general was now very gentle with me. He made me sit down at table, and poured me out some tea. He offered me a cigar, too, and although I ought not to have done so, I lighted it. It nipped my tongue a good deal, but I had to show them that I was a man. Then he made me tell them how I had got out of the fortress, and how I had forced my way through the hostile camp. My relation made a good impression. When I was dismissed, they pressed my hand and assured me that my good and boldly executed service should be rewarded. They further commanded me to come to them early the next day. End of Part 2 of Chapter 13